Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Well, good morning, Sovereign Hope. It is a pleasure to, to be with you. And I just first just want to thank you all for your participation in the gospel work in Trieste, Italy. I can speak on behalf of not only my family, but also the Vanellis who were here about a month ago. Uh, we, were, we are deeply moved by your love, the financial support, but also the pastoral care, the phone calls, the emails that we've received. Uh, we're, we're, we're extremely thankful. For those who don't know me, I, w- I did speak a little over a year ago here. I just want to briefly just review uh, a little bit about our ministry in Trieste, give you a little bit of the history of it before we look at uh, this passage, this beautiful passage, a very hopeful passage from the book of Isaiah. I moved to Trieste, uh, Italy, in 2000 uh, to start a church. Trieste is a, is a city of about a, a, quart- a little less than a quarter million of people. Uh, and there's less than, there was less at that point, uh, there was less than 100 believers. Trieste, if you can look, I have some uh, slide with some pictures that you might be able to see some of it. As you see on that map, Trieste is in the northeast corner of Italy. It's, it's where the Alps meet the Adriatic Sea. It truly is a beautiful, a beautiful place. But it also has a really rich history. Uh, it was considered the southernmost part of the Iron Curtain, uh, it's been controlled by different people, by the Italians, by the Austrian Empire, uh, by Yugoslavia. Uh, and actually, after World War II, for eight years, it was a free territory. So it's a city that's rich in, and has a rich history and a lot of diversity just in its cultural background. If you hear about Trieste nowadays, it's probably only one of two things. It's considered the capital of Italian coffee. Some of the more famous Italian coffee brands like Ili, which has also become more popular here in the United States, is from Trieste. Uh, But it's also maybe the most famous thing about it is for these extremely powerful winds called the Bora. You can see a picture taken many years ago of people literally being blown away in the streets. It has gusts of 125 mile per hour winds that come about four or five times a year in the winter. So it's definitely the biggest celebrity of, of Trieste. Well, I will admit to you when I went over to, to Trieste, uh, I, was, uh, I just turned 26 years old, and I came over with some rose-colored glasses on. Uh, I would be the first to admit to you I, have, I had a very romantic view of Italian missions. I mean, missions itself is already a pretty romantic idea. You know, you're going to a new country. You have this powerful gospel. There's this people that need to hear this message. And it's really easy and right, probably, to dream big dreams about what God can do in a country. Well, Italy is also a very romantic country. It's beautiful landscapes, beautiful people, wonderful food. Just a great place to live. And so combining these two together, before I went to Trieste, I I used to live in Great Falls, Montana. So imagine someone from Great Falls. I say Great Falls and they laugh, that's good. Uh, Going to a place like 
like uh, uh, Trieste was definitely a cultural uh, shock for me. But in my mind, I really did, this is true, I, I, on the plane, I had this vision of what it was going to be like when I finally uh, touched down in Trieste. I would be, you know, it's like in the canals of Venice in a gondola uh, with the pole, preaching the gospel from the boats, uh, lots of uh, small Italian men in, in, in white t-shirts diving into the canal, wanting to be baptized, and I was confident and sure that this is exactly how uh, my time in Italy was going to be. Well, so we got to work right away, and we did a lot of things to try to make contacts to be able to get the gospel into the lives of the people who are around us. We tried everything. We had free English lessons. We had free Spanish lessons. We had uh, a coffee shop that we, that we organized. We did street evangelism. We did cooking classes. We put tracks in mailboxes. We organized concerts and organized events. We ran countless Bible studies inviting people to hear God's word. We would do anything we could think of to tell people about Jesus. And I can tell you, after 15 years of that, at the end, there is a church that's healthy, that has a local Italian pastor that many of you have met, Elio, who was here about a month ago. And not only that, it's exciting because not only is it a church that's not led by a missionary, it's a missionary who's gone there, the local pastor, and now this church is trying to start new churches in the area. In fact, it's, it's actually very exciting to see all that's going on. We're trying to start new community groups in the area, hoping that those will turn into future churches someday. Saying that, there's still a lot of work to be done. Still, less than 0.1% of Trieste have put their trust in Jesus Christ. So it's easy for me as a missionary who started in 2000 to come now in 2019 and talk about the success of what has taken place. But if I were to be honest, and I do want to be very honest with you this morning, that whole 15 years to get to that point felt like a whole lot of failure. I, I, for me particularly, probably because I'm a trained math teacher, learning the Italian language was extremely difficult. I remember in these first years, and my wife, who uh, was my Italian teacher, and I learned quickly, if I'm going to learn Italian, I better marry my Italian teacher. Uh, it's my only hope. Uh, she graciously persisted to help me with my Italian, but the beginning was rough. I remember speaking, preaching hard on the will of God, must have been 45 minutes, and everybody's just kind of looking at me confused, and I asked my wife afterwards, well, what, what was the confusion? Well, you just spent 45 minutes preaching about the steering wheel of God. <laughs> okay, well, that can be a little bit confusing. I also preached a sermon thinking that I was talking about how, how uh, Paul was planting churches all around, and I found out later that I really was talking about how Paul was shipwrecking and sinking churches everywhere <laughs> that he went. But probably the biggest failure, I, I don't know why, maybe you can chalk it up to being 26 or 27 and being having a very romantic view of missions. I decided, I kid you not, in this early baby church with my very broken Italian, that I was going to preach through all 42 chapters of the book of Job, Hebrew poetry, verse by verse, and uh, thinking that was going to be a really good idea. The good news is that everybody in the congregation felt a little bit more of that sense of pain that Job was going through. 
uh, and I wanted to give up. I recognized, my goodness, how many mistakes am I going to be able to, to make as a leader? And not only in my language, but also as I was trying to lead this, this baby church, I, I found that there was all sorts of problems that I just wasn't ready for. And it just seemed like failure after failure. I was preaching once, and during the middle of the sermon, someone came up and started taking the communion bread, eating it as a snack while I was preaching. And so I thought, well, I better tell them no, this isn't what communion bread is. Of course, I do that publicly in front of everybody. She storms out and slams the door in the church. And I'm thinking, how in the world did I let all of this happen? We had pets that were brought to church. Uh, one person, this is my favorite, one person was, was convinced he needed to do special music. After hearing me preach for probably a month, he wasn't a Christian, but he says, I want to do special music. I said, okay, great. He goes, I want to sing We Are the Champions by Queen. I was like, no, that's... That's not the special music that we want right now. So as I look back through the 15 years, it was a whole lot of stories of failure. It was a whole lot of stories of me finding my weakness and my inadequacies to do this job that God had called me to do. But maybe even bigger than that, and this is the part that's probably the most embarrassing, it wasn't just my failures because of my weakness. I know that there were times when I put all of this effort into go talk with someone at a coffee shop or I, we invited someone over to our, our, our house for, for a meal. And it came to a point where there was this perfect opportunity to share the gospel. And here I am considering, I'm not sure if I should ruin the conversation, quote unquote, by talking about the gospel. I don't want to ruin this relationship. Maybe it needs just more time to develop. Think, a missionary who's ashamed of the gospel, even in his own house. So I come to you, even though there's this success story, I come to you recognizing as a missionary, I found a whole lot of failure in those 15 years. Now, my question now is for all of us. Do you ever feel that sense of failure? Maybe students who are going to university, or you're going to a high school, or maybe at work, how do you deal with failure? If you're like me, we've failed so much in our life. You know, we've failed to make a free throw. We've failed to make a sports team. We've failed to make a part in a play. I definitely failed to impress my English teacher. I failed to get a job after an interview. I failed my driving test twice. Failure. But there's something about failure, and I want to compare it with what I call failure, there's a type of failure that we feel a lot more deeply. And I think we feel it more deeply because it's a type of failure that goes against what we were made to do and who we were created to be. And so as the, I have this missionary call to go, go explain the gospel to Italians in a language in the beginning that I, I, I could hardly communicate. It felt like I had all of this information and it had to come out of my mouth and I sounded like a two-year-old. Knowing that limitation, there's something, I'm not able to do this task that God has asked me to do. So whether that failure was through weakness, struggling with language, or whether that Failure is due to my own sin and cowardice to present the gospel. We feel that failure a little bit deeper. As parents, here's another call that we have. We have a call to shepherd our children. We have a call to nurture them and to train them. 
and the knowledge of our Lord. But we know there's sometimes we're just, we're not strict enough. Other times we know we're too strict or maybe we're not present enough. We're not sensitive enough. And these, there's lives, there's futures that are involved with our children. And so it becomes extremely difficult. We lose sleep. We become physically sick. Or maybe we have the call of a friend. And we know as a friend we're supposed to be telling our friends the truth. And sometimes because we don't want to offend our friends, we don't say anything. We have the call. We're supposed to be good friends, but we're very careful. We're very cautious and maybe cowards to tell them what they need to hear. And other times, as we're supposed to be helping our friends grow, we tell them what they need to hear, but we do it in a way that's extremely rude or very difficult for them to grow. We fail, and we feel this failure that's dealing with the call that we have, and it hurts. And I think in my own life and in my ministry in Italy, I have a feeling this is true for everybody, we react to failure in, in different ways. One reaction to failure is that we, 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 we become depressed or we, we're sad or we become extremely guilty. You know, we've let people down. We, we feel worthless and meaningless because we're, we, we haven't been able to do what God has called us to do. But another reaction that we have is we can become cold. You know, we try to hide our failure or downplay it or minimize it, make excuses for it. Kind of by saying, oh, we're not, at least we're not as big of failures as those other people. And this makes us arrogant and proud and hypocritical. You know, think of an example of, 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 of a young boy who's playing baseball. You know, the, the, the pressure that these kids sometimes have in sports. You know, the, the bases are loaded. There's two outs, and this poor, you know, seven-year-old is up to bat with all of the pressure of his team on his shoulders. And let's just say that he strikes out. Well, what is this kid going to do? Well, one of that, those reactions is he's going to blame it. Well, you know, I wasn't feeling good. I had a tummy ache uh, today before the game where my wrist was, was really hurting. The sun was kind of in my eyes on that last pitch. We make excuses, you know, like, like this boy playing the baseball. Or another reaction is, you know, we, we might, this boy might say, you know what, I don't think I want to play baseball anymore. I don't think I like letting my teammates down. This failure is too much for me. Well, that's exactly the same kind of reactions I think we continue to do as we grow older. Are you like me? Have you failed in this call, this task in missions or evangelism? Maybe we fail and we make excuses. You know, I was too busy. It's not my gift. I really wasn't made this way. It's certainly the wrong time. Or maybe we blame shift. You know, it's, it's actually the church's fault because they haven't prepared me for this. Or maybe we have the opposite reaction. We just start to feel guilty. You know, we run through our mind, oh, I wish I would have said that during dinner. Or maybe we just give up and say, I'm tired of this. I don't want to invite anybody over anymore. So take that, what we have as fallen human beings with this sense of failure and we want to take that to this passage, which is the context of Isaiah 49. So if you have your Bibles, if you would open up to Isaiah 49. We want to see in this passage that Israel was in a very similar situation to an Italian missionary in Trieste. Or maybe a parent or a friend 
or an evangelist here in Missoula, Montana. Because Israel had a call, like a friend, like a missionary. Remember what they were called to do. Through them, nations and families of the earth were to be blessed. Through their obedience and way of living, salvation was going to be offered to the nations. And we know what happened. They failed. Instead of them giving a glimpse to the world of what God is like, what did they do? They abused the poor. They were selfish. They were bowing before idols. And they were doing it over and over and over again. And certainly some of them became depressed and wanted to give up. And many others became very religious and cold and hypocritical. They completely failed. In fact, right before our passage in chapter 48, if you flip back just a few uh, verses, in chapter 48, verse 18, listen to what the Lord says to them. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Why? Why did you fail? You had this task. The, the descendants could have been like the sand, but you failed. You didn't obey. And isn't that the call that we have as human beings? Weren't we made to be the image bearers? But what did we do right away in the garden? We failed. We didn't do what we were supposed to do. Instead of love and compassion and purity and holiness, there's selfishness and cruelty and perversion and corruption. And even as Christians, Jesus presses us even harder. In Matthew 5, 14, he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I don't know about you, but as a missionary, I've read these verses, and I'm thinking, when is the last time someone in Trieste has watched the way that I live, has watched me as, as, a, as a city set on a hill and glorified the Father, because of it. Failures. But what we see and what we want to see in this passage in Isaiah chapter 49, we have, I think, one of the greatest and, and most hopeful messages to missionaries and evangelists and by application, parents and friends and other calls that we failed at. What we want to look at this morning is we want to see first how we are rescued as failures Secondly, how we are understood. Third, how we can be sure as failures. And fourthly, how can we interpret failure? First, let's look at these first verses and see how we're rescued. I'm going to go right through the passage now. I'm going to start in verse 1. He says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom 
I will be glorified. We see after this announcement of failure in chapter 48, now there's this announcement. Someone starts singing a song in chapter 49, and it's really important for us to know who's singing the song. Okay, there's a song being sung, but who's singing it? And this text gives us some clues. It's someone we see who was called from the womb by God the Father. We see that he would be named while he was in his mother's womb. He would be a prophet that would have this sharp, effective sword for a mouth. His word would be so powerful and accurate, it would be like a polished arrow. But then in verse 3, probably the most shocking statement to understand who is singing this takes place. We see in verse 3, what does God the Father say to the singer? You are my servant. Your name is what? Israel. And in you, I will be glorified. In you, the singing servant, I'm going to be glorified. And so we're kind of coming to the text. Well, who is this? It seems like someone who's called from the womb, a prophet who's come. Who, who, who is singing and why is his name Israel, the name of the people of God? And if we jump to verse 5, we're going to have a little bit of help with this. And verse 5 says, and now the Lord says, he who formed me, from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. So now we have this one who's called, who will take the name Israel, and what is this Israel going to do? He's going to restore Judah and Israel. That's going to be his task. So now, as we put all this together, we see kind of the big point. The author of the song is going to be Israel and is going to do what Israel was called to do, but what Israel failed to do. He would be the true Israel. In fact, in verse 6, it says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This new Israel was going to do what the old Israel failed to do. They were failures. They weren't able to live a a life as a people that put God on display as they could have loved the poor Help those who are being oppressed, showed holiness and purity and all that they did. As they failed, someone comes and says, don't worry, I will be Israel, and I'm coming as Israel to restore you, Israel. He would be a substitution from Israel, and I think we know who this is. This is Jesus himself, born of a woman, named from the womb, the word made flesh, singing hope to Israel. He says, now, I know you failed. I know you haven't shown me to the nations. I know you, like that guy in Italy, stink as a missionary. But instead of being a light to the nations, they see darkness in you. But don't worry. Don't fret, Israel. I will succeed for you. I will be Israel for you. And in me, God will finally be glorified. And this is what he's done. I'm giving testimony that this is what he's done in Trieste as there's, a, as there's a congregation of worshipers who want to go out into their neighborhoods and tell other people about this. And as we see this, this going throughout all the lands, 
Here in this room, how many different types of people has God changed from different generations, from different socioeconomic classes? All gathering together to say, yes, we agree. Jesus is the true and greater Israel for us. So have you failed as a friend that God has called you to be? Well, Jesus is singing to you. He says, I am the servant, the true and greater friend, and I'll succeed where you failed. Have you failed as a husband or a parent or a son? What is Jesus saying? He's singing to us, I will be the true husband and the true parent. I will be the one who will glorify God for you. And unite yourself to me and let me be perfect for you. Are you like me? Maybe your evangelism or your missions is a little pathetic. Maybe you're like me in Israel. He says, I am the true missionary that left his home to reach the lost. I am that for you, Matt. In fact, Jesus will fulfill Israel's call for them. What were they to do? Remember, all the families of the earth were to be blessed in them. But there's more to this. We still haven't reached the most fundamental part of the question, how are we rescued? How did Jesus become the true and greater Israel for us? We talked about the first part right now, that he obeyed for us. He did the task that we couldn't do or we didn't want to do. But look how important verse 7 is in completing the story. Verse 7 says, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. All kings shall see and arise. Princes, they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. You see, for Jesus to be that true Israel, that true friend, that true, that true son, that true brother for us, to accomplish the task that we weren't able to do, it wasn't only through his obedience, but he would have to be deeply despised and abhorred. For Jesus to save failures like us, he would identify himself as the failure. He would be rejected. He would be refused, he would be persecuted, he would be mocked, he would be spat upon, derobed, hung between two failures in society, and ultimately killed as a criminal. Jesus, who knew no failure, would become failure that we who knew very little success would find true success united to him. In him we have found our hope. So that's the great hope for failures like us. That's the great hope for Pastor Elio in Italy right now. That's the hope for every missionary. Not that we're going to be able to save people. Not that we're going to even be able to communicate things clearly. But we know someone has succeeded ultimately for us. Namely, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Second point, though, we see how we're rescued how are we understood? If you notice, we skipped over a verse. We skipped over verse four. That might be a little bit shocking for us. A verse that points, though, to how great our Savior really is. You know, we might think, okay, Jesus, he doesn't really understand us. He's never really failed himself. But listen to the harmony in this song. Verse four. But I said, 
I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Jesus understood perfectly the temptation of wallowing in failure. Jesus' life and ministry, it wasn't roses. It wasn't a Hollywood movie. People weren't jumping in canals to be baptized. Think of all the times he spent with the disciples, and yet they still fought amongst themselves. Almost all would run away and deny him. One would eventually betray him with a kiss. The Pharisees were always on the defensive, always attacking while he's offering him, offering them rest. For the God-man, it felt, he felt, he felt the failure. It felt useless. It felt at times fruitless. We can't say that Jesus doesn't understand feelings of failure and rejection. The difference is that every time Jesus was tempted to wallow in failure, he spoke truth to himself. Look how this verse finishes. Yet in this, with that temptation, his response is truth. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. For him, what was right was with the Father. His recompense was with the Father. His hope is with the Father. We can experience the temptation of failure without sinning. You know, I can fail a driver's test twice. It's still going to sting as failure. But I can run to God and I can say, you know what, Jesus is my identity, not being a good driver, and I'm united to him. And God will determine what true success is and will make all right at the end. So if you're someone who often struggles with strong feelings of failure, when you look at the world around you, do as our sympathetic Savior did and preach truth to yourself as you look and run to God. Church, we are not defined by the score on any final exam at school. We are not defined by how successful we are at work. We're not defined by how effective a missionary or how effective a preacher we are. We are defined by Christ's obedience and Christ's death. The identity of every Christian is in Christ. And it's in that freedom that we can actually take the test and we can actually work and serve the Lord, that we can actually be freed to go tell people about how wonderful Christ is. Jesus is. We're not defined by how popular we are at school or work. We're not defined by how well our kids are behaving or how our friends are handling life. We're defined by our union with Christ, the true and greater Israel. This is what we have to preach to ourselves and not be overcome with feelings of failure. But I think my favorite part of this passage and the the reason why I wanted to bring this passage here to Sovereign Hope this morning is because of the third point, how can we be sure? This third point, I just wanna read this passage again. This is, I'm gonna read verses eight through 12. Just listen to this part of the song. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritage, saying to the prisoners, come out, those who are in darkness, appear, 
They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains as a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syen. I love these verses because as a missionary, or whatever call you have, we have in in this passage really great hope. How can we be sure? Well, the first thing we see in verse 8 is he talks about a covenant. He's saying, I'm making a promise to that saving, singing Savior. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. How sure are we that God is going to be able to accomplish his tasks? How sure are we? He says, I will keep Christ, who is going to be the covenant. He is the promise. It's when we're united to him, the God-man, that we're going to be able to say nothing can take away, nothing we, no failure we can do can undo what he accomplished when he lived his life on the earth and when he died on the cross. That's the covenant. He's the covenant to the people. But I think he's saying even something more spectacular to us as we look through uh, this passage. I'm speaking now as a parent. I don't know... uh, 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 who's ever heard of this book? I, I, I thought of this book, and luckily my mom, who lives in Kalispell, had a copy. It's called uh, The Runaway Bunny. I don't know if any parents have ever read this. I read this to uh, my kids. And if you've never read this book, it's a wonderful book, especially for little kids. Uh, the basic idea in this book is there is this little bunny who is determined he's going to run away from home. And as creative as he's going to be to run away from home, his mother always responds saying, I'll be even more creative to make sure that I bring you home. And there's this great line that says something to the effect of, because you are my bunny. And so this goes back and forth as bunny and the mom, uh, being the bunny always trying to be more creative than the mom of how he's going to run away. And the bunny at the end says, well, I guess I might as well just stay home and not run away. And then the mom says something like, yes, now eat some carrots. It's this, it's this great little kid book that's really talking about what's behind that concept of covenant love. God says, it doesn't matter how big a failure is. You can, you can mess up the message. You can mess up the Italian language. You can, you can do all sorts of things that seem like they're going to sabotage everything, but I'm going to be right there and make sure everything goes according to my plan. So no matter how, how creative you think you might be in your failure, I'm going to be even more creative in the success that I'm going to give because this is my work in my kingdom. I'm the one who is going to be in charge. And so there's this great comfort that we have of this covenant love, this bomb-proof, forever and always, never letting up love that God has towards his people, ultimately, as being the great missionary, and he's never going to give up as well. So I like to read through, I call verses 9 through 12, instead of the runaway bunny, this is the runaway missionary. How many times in my ministry in Trieste did I think, oh, I've certainly sabotaged everything this time? What hope could Trieste have with a missionary like me? How can God reach all the nations? 
So if we look, I, I hear this conversation, you know. We might say, yeah, God, I want to reach the people in Trieste. Or maybe you're saying, yeah, I want to reach the people in Missoula. But God, they're prisoners. They're shackled. They're, they're, they're bound. How, how am I supposed to be helping them out? In verse 9, he says to the prisoners, come out. Yeah, but even if they're unshackled, don't you see, God, the darkness around don't you hear the news? Don't you see how much confusion there is? And he says to those who are in darkness, appear. Yeah, but okay, God, but, but what, if they, what if they're hungry? Well, they shall feed along the ways, and all bare heights shall be their pasture. Okay, and if they're thirsty, they shall not hunger or thirst. All right, but what if it gets too hot? No, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. And if I lose them, uh, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. Yeah, but what if I can't get them over that mountain? I will make all mountains a road. Well, what if the valleys, though, are too dangerous and too deep, and my highways shall be raised up? You know, God, are you sure, verse 12, behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Do you hear the great promise for every missionary? We're failures, we recognize that, but we know our true hope is in Christ who obeyed for us and he died for us. We know he also understands that temptation that we have in failure, and he points us to God himself, talking to him. And now he says, not only that, Jesus himself is going to be the covenant, the sign, the proof. In him, there is no failure. And not only that, I'm going to make sure that all of the nations are going to hear this message whether they're in prison or whether they're in darkness or whether the mountains are high or the valleys are low, I will reach my people. Just go proclaim my word. It's great hope. Great hope in this passage. You know, maybe you fail to tell people about Jesus. Maybe you fail to spend your time and your money to boldly make him known. But Jesus promises he's going to open our mouth. He's going to give us words to say. He's going to grow our love for the lost. He says, no, this is not a mountain that's going to be too tall to cross. Behold, these shall come from afar. Maybe you think, as a friend, you're never going to change. So you look to Jesus. You become the friend that Jesus is, and he's going to help you. He's going to finish the promise. He says, the good work that I've started, I'll be faithful to bring it to completion. So whatever failure we have, we run to Jesus, knowing that that's where our true hope really is. And this leads us to our last point, verse 13. Verse, uh, the fourth point is, how can we interpret failure? I love how this servant song, the second servant song finishes, verse 13 Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Remember in the beginning, we started with those two options. 
We're either going to be wallowing in failure, which leads to depression and sadness or giving up, or the other is we're going to be hiding our failure with arrogance and hypocrisy. But when we meet the servant Savior and we listen to his song, we finish with joy and singing. Do we see how freeing this song is for us? No one can impress God with his or her actions. We're all failures in front of a perfect God. But Jesus says to us, I will be the one who succeeds for you. Israel had hope because the true and greater Israel would come. So our failure is no longer something that should bring us to depression or despondency because one has succeeded for us. The Lord, as he says, has truly comforted his people. And failure certainly shouldn't lead us or bring us to pride or arrogance as we try to hide or minimize our failures because our hope is in the true and greater Israel. For the Lord has comforted his people, not the missionary, not the pastor, not the small group, not the church, not the parachurch ministry. The Lord has comforted his people. Why hide when we have found in him compassion? In fact, when we experience his compassion, we're propelled into being more compassionate to other failures just like us. Instead of judging them as worse, we can cry with them and comfort them by pointing them to Jesus Christ. So our failure is now no longer a catalyst to send us to depression or into hypocrisy. It's a fundamental part of claiming that our true hope is in Christ and in Christ alone. And we can join in this verse 13 with singing and rejoicing. And my concluding thought is, and I, I really believe this is true, when a community, when a church is convicted and has found hope in Jesus, and now when they fail, it's no longer something that makes them really difficult to be around, and it also doesn't just drop them on the floor and leave them there. They're able to maybe wipe a tear, get back up, and find true joy in Christ. That's the kind of community that's so attractive and is used by God to bring people from all nations to himself. It's through transforming us in how we deal with failure that the gospel is really put on display. Think about your school, or think about your workplace, or think about those around you. How often is it for us to see when someone fails, someone to go in one of those two directions? But how refreshing for someone to see, you know what, failure hasn't changed his plans. He's still finding joy in hope, not in being a great worker, not in being a great student, not in being a great anything. He's found all his hope in being united to Christ Jesus and to him alone. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you so much for this passage. Lord, I, I come and I think I represent us all clearly here. We come as failures before you. Lord, we recognize our limits, our weakness, but Lord, we also recognize our sin and our cowardice. But God, what great hope we have that we can run to Jesus, one who became true Israel for us, who was able to be despised and abhorred to become that failure for us 
so that in him we might have life and life abundantly and we might have rejoicing and singing. God, we give you all the praise because you have comforted your people. And so, Lord, we humbly now ask that you would continue to use us in your great rescue plan of the nations. Lord, may we open our mouths because we have complete confidence in the covenant in Christ Jesus himself. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.